Today, land is prominent in our minds, especially in Canada. Recently in northern BC, the RCMP arrested elders, journalists, and others on Wet'suwet'en territory as they tried to protect the land from the incursion of the coastal gas link pipeline, which is planned to go under the Wet'suwet'en River. For Gedemden hereditary chief Dinze Wu's, the blockade is necessary to protect the drinking water. During this same week in southern BC, massive flooding and resultant landslides devastated many communities collapsing highways and killing thousands of farm animals and several humans. After a summer of wildfires and record-breaking heat waves, many are feeling the ominous effects of climate change. And yet there are some who deny climate change, despite the repeated warnings from scientists who study the climate and environment, and from indigenous people who are trying to protect the earth. What does any of this have to do with art history? Well, surprisingly, it has a lot to do with art history because we can track ideas about the land by examining landscape paintings. In this episode of Unboxing the Canon, called Where is the Land in Landscape, we look at the histories of landscape painting in the canon of Western art and assess a few contemporary works of art that counter European modes of thinking about land, territory, nature, and the environment. Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brushstrokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join me, Professor Linda Steer, and co-host Madeline Collins for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. Hi, I'm Linda Steer, and I'm here with Madeline Collins. And we're thinking about representations of nature and land in the history of Western art. There are many examples we could talk about. Yes. For instance, excavations at Pompeii and other towns revealed that many Roman homes were decorated with paintings, and some of these depicted gardens, flora and fauna, and other nature scenes. These towns were covered with ash almost two millennia ago, in the year 79 when Mount Vesuvius erupted. In some cases, the landscape is just a backdrop for a mythological scene, such as in the wall painting that depicts Polyphemus and Galatea in a landscape from the Imperial Villa at Boscotracasi. Whether this is exactly landscape painting is debated. For example, art historian Kenneth Clark dismisses these paintings as merely backgrounds or digressions because the landscape itself isn't the subject matter. However, a few decades later, the walls of the garden room at the Villa of Livia, Augustus's wife, were painted with an illusionary landscape that did not depict mythology. Here we see cultivated nature, trees with fruit, birds, flowers, and other plants. It is as if the room expands to encompass the outdoors. As in later Dutch still life paintings, the combination of plants from various seasons is actually impossible, even though the scene is rendered realistically. 
There are also landscapes in Renaissance paintings, such as in the scene of Two Rivers Behind Mona Lisa, or in Raphael's paintings of holy figures in a landscape or in front of a landscape seen through a window. Some scholars, such as Martin Kemp, argue that the landscape in the Mona Lisa is important for it creates connections between the human body of the woman and the geology of the earth. A very interesting idea, but I'm getting off track here. We want to focus on landscape as subject matter in art and are especially interested in the connections between landscape art and the relationship humans have to nature and to the land at particular moments. So when in the European canon do we begin to see the kind of painting that we think of as landscape painting, where the land itself is the subject? Typically, we tend to think of landscape as emerging in 17th century Dutch painting and developing through the 18th century in France and the 19th century in England. This point of view sees landscape as a genre that unfolds over time in a linear fashion, much the way traditional art history sees art as a succession of styles. However, it's worth thinking about landscape more broadly. In the influential anthology Landscape and Power, Visual culture scholar W.J.T. Mitchell notes that, quote, Landscape circulates as a medium of exchange, a site of visual appropriation, a focus for the formation of identity, end quote. What follows, then, is that landscape isn't simply a genre that depicts nature, and it certainly isn't neutral. Mitchell also observes that some of the generally accepted so-called facts about landscape are limiting and Eurocentric. It's worth thinking about Mitchell's essay because it provides us with alternative ways of thinking about landscape. For instance, traditional approaches to landscape thought of it as a uniquely European invention. But when England became the dominant imperial power in the 19th century, English painters and gardeners appropriated landscape painting, developed by the artists and gardeners of imperial China. This shows that the representation of landscape isn't only determined by internal politics or national ideology, but, to quote Mitchell, also an international global phenomenon, intimately bound up with the discourses of imperialism, end quote. Later in this episode, we will consider the implications of this view on the land. But first, let's take a closer look at Dutch landscape in the 17th century. Prior to the 17th century, landscapes in Dutch painting had largely been imaginary or fantastical Weltanschaft, or world landscapes, created for the enjoyment of wealthy viewers. In the early 1600s, there's a shift towards more realistic landscapes that represent Dutch territory, particularly around Harlem. By the mid-17th century, landscape painting was flourishing in the newly formed Dutch Republic. Why? Many art historians write that, as with genre painting and still-life painting, the emergence of a large wealthy class with expendable income created a market for painting. Sure. But it wasn't just wealthy citizens who wanted landscapes. Prints of nearby places were popular amongst all the classes. As Anne Jensen Adams notes, landscape responds to and naturalizes changes that were happening at the time such as the newly won independence from Spain after the Eighty Years' War, a shift from Catholicism to Protestantism, and the immigration that went along with these changes. 
Land was significant in a place that was below sea level, and the Dutch undertook the largest land reclamation project in the world. 110,000 hectares were reclaimed from the sea or from lakes via drainage between 1590 and 1664 to expand the area. However, interestingly, for the most part, Dutch viewers and collectors in the early 17th century did not want representations of this newly changed landscapes with its dikes and polders. Instead, they wanted traditional Dutch landscapes, especially those depicting dunes, a space that Irene J. Claver notes is, quote, beyond the human. We see similar issues in 19th century French landscape painting, where artists from the Barbizon school broke from the idealized Italianate style, popularized by 17th century French painter Claude Lorraine. Claude created hazy, misty paintings using atmospheric perspective that put mythological stories in timeless settings. While many French and Italian landscape painters followed Claude because he elevated the lowly status of the genre in the eyes of academic painters, the Barbizon painters aimed for a naturalistic style that depicted local, natural scenes rather than the contrived scenes of earlier French painters, particularly the area of the Fontainebleau Forest, far away from the changes caused by increasing industrialization. In fact, one of the painters, Theodore Rousseau, successfully petitioned Napoleon III to save the forest from development. The Barbizon painters influenced a younger generation of artists, the Impressionists, who were also reacting to some of the changes caused by industrialization and the influx of people from the country to the city. But the Impressionists, for the most part, focused on modern life as it was experienced in urban and suburban settings, even though they painted en plein air, or outdoors, as had painters like Rousseau. And the Barbizon School of Painters were influenced by John Constable, a British landscape painter who had exhibited at the French Salon in 1824 and won a gold medal for his painting called The Haywain. This large canvas, from 1821, pictures laborers harvesting hay in the fields in the background, while a small team of horses pulls a large wagon across a river in the foreground. Aside from its influence on later painters, why is this rural scene important? Some art historians see it as a reaction to industrialization where, as Beth Harris and Stephen Zucker note, the wealthy urban elite began to see the countryside as a kind of lost Eden, an idealized place that did not acknowledge the poverty and hardship faced by people like those depicted in the Haywine, who had to leave the countryside for an uncertain and difficult future in the city. Do paintings like this do anything to decrease the poverty faced by working-class people or to impede child labor? No. I'd call this a nostalgic painting, an image that longs for a past that never really existed. J.W.M. Turner, another British painter and contemporary of Constable, did not overlook the evidence of modernity, capitalism, and the Industrial Revolution in his landscapes. 
Turner painted dramatic scenes and landscapes that functioned more like history painting, evoking a range of feelings, responses, and meanings. Turner's paintings of industrialization in nature conjured the sublime, that category of experience that produced strong, even overwhelming emotions, as theorized by philosopher Edmund Burke in 1757. In Rain, Steam, and Speed, the Great Western Railway, painted in 1844, Turner shows industrialization as part of nature. A train emerges from a smoky, foggy background, pushing over a bridge and across a river towards the front of the canvas and towards us, the viewers, in colors of brown, rust, and black. We see another bridge at the left side of the canvas, an old stone bridge that will be unable to carry this new train. So maybe there's a bit of nostalgia here. River, sky, rain, train, steam, and haze all merge, obscuring much of the scene. The only detail is a small boat with two figures in the river below. The tiny boat is suspended in the river, seemingly vulnerable in contrast to the train that barrels across it. This contrast evokes the sublime. Connected to the idea of the sublime, there was an increasing idea of wilderness that intrigued American environmentalists and nationalists in the early 19th century. Scholar Roderick Nash describes how America, known as the New World, had a lot of anxiety. They needed to justify themselves as a unique, independent country in comparison to Europe, which had already cemented itself as the peak of culture and refinement after centuries of development. The solution was exalting their wilderness, something that really didn't exist in Europe anymore, making it unique to America and thus becoming a source of national pride. But it wasn't just wilderness that became the asset, it was wildness. Europe had sublime vistas, and other countries had more tropical flora and fauna. But the supposedly untouched and undisrupted state of American landscape set it apart. American settlers believed that they lived in the true work of God because they hadn't covered up his work with cultural monuments. This also gave America a moral high ground over Europe. By mid-century, these themes had developed into a national style in the American canon, with artist Thomas Cole as the premier landscapist in the country. Cole originally emigrated from England to Ohio in 1818 and saw incredible beauty in its forests, cliffs, and storms. Using European Romantic ideals, he made dramatic compositions of this wild nature without humans or their influence, at the very most including them as teeny, inconsequential figures in the background. Due to his European background, Cole still placed a lot of value in Europe's civilization, and thus began to, quote, idealize a combination of the wild and the civilized, end quote. In one of his most famous works, titled, a View from Mount Holyoke, Northampton, Massachusetts, After a Thunderstorm, from 1836, but known colloquially as just the Oxbow. The left side of the canvas depicts a sublime view of nature, complete with dark storm clouds, unruly forests, and trees split by lightning. The right side, however, depicts a calmer view of the land, neatly cultivated by humans. In addition, paintings like these promote manifest destiny. 
As the painting shifts west, it displays the land available to be tamed, backgrounded by the successful culture that humans have already created. It justifies westward expansion, focusing on the pride in American conquest and environmental purity, and ignores indigenous presence. Visually, the painting functions as a sort of invitation. While the left wild side of the painting seems impenetrable, as there is no path and the scene is blocked by a large tree and thick undergrowth, the right side of the painting is bright, cultivated, ordered, and the flow of the river functions as a path for viewers to enter the imaginary of the painting. The painter situates himself in the bottom center of the large canvas, right at the edge of the wild side, looking into the cultivated side of the painting. There's so much to say about this painting and so much to critique. In my mind, the greatest problem with these kinds of paintings is the erasure of indigenous peoples from the landscape, a chilling reminder both of genocide through colonization, as well as Western ignorance regarding indigenous connections to the land and indigenous resilience. But I want to stop for a moment and think about this visual strategy in Western landscape that creates a way of entering a painting and how it might help us to think about contemporary Indigenous landscape art in North America. Extrapolating from Mitchell, scholar Kate Morris argues that European landscape is invitational, meaning that it invites the viewer into the landscape, the landscape that is being colonized. By contrast, Indigenous landscape art can be seen as anti-invitational, meaning that some Indigenous landscape painters, quote, employ devices to block the imaginary entrance, end quote, into the painting. Here she is thinking about Cherokee artist Kay Walkingstick's paintings of place and space that evoke both an understanding of the present visual world and the abstract eternal. Morris writes, quote, that Mitchell discerned a causal relationship between colonialist ideologies and landscape painting traditions bears directly on interpretations of indigenous landscape art, which refuses to reproduce the invitational tropes of the European landscape tradition. End quote. A very interesting idea. Where European art provides the viewer with a way of entering and taking ownership, Morris shows that the examples of Indigenous art she examines are, quote, a vehicle for the expression of place-based knowledge, end quote. For example, the protest performance art piece, Mirror Shield Project Water Serpent Action, at the Oteki Shakowan Camp near Standing Rock in 2016, initiated by artists Knupa Hanska Luger and Rory Wakemup, functions as a form of, quote, indigenous visual sovereignty, end quote, broadly defined as, quote, the visual expression of indigenous knowledge, end quote. The Mirror Shield Project was a collaborative art piece where volunteers made reflective vinyl-coated masonite shields that were delivered to water protectors at Standing Rock. Borrowed from a protest where Ukrainian women had held up mirrors to riot police, these reflective shields function as protection, but also as a way to remind the police of their humanity, as they could see themselves reflected while facing protesters. In the Water Serpent Action site-specific performance, 
hundreds of water protectors raised their shields to the sun in unison while walking in a formation that mimicked the shape of a river or serpent. This peaceful and evocative action connected to the land and to the water that the protectors were fighting for. This piece reminds me of Anishinaabe artist Rebecca Balmore's work Speaking to Their Mother, a large 12-foot-long wooden megaphone that allows participants to speak directly to the land. In Belmore's words, quote, This artwork was my response to what is now referred to in Canadian history as the Oka Crisis. During the summer of 1990, many protests were mounted in support of the Mohawk Nation of Kanasataki in their struggle to maintain their territory. This object was taken into many First Nations communities, reservation, rural, and urban. I was particularly interested in locating the Aboriginal voice on the land. Asking people to address the land directly was an attempt to hear political protest as poetic action. End quote. Morris sees this work as presupposing the earth or the land as an animate being, where Belmore attempted to, quote, foster communication between the earth and its people, end quote. This is what Belmore says about the experience of speaking into this megaphone. I felt so small, and I felt my place as a human being, as part of the land. Others who engaged with this work, such as Dylan Robertson, a Stalo sound performance scholar, have noted that the desire to address those in power, rather than the earth, is very powerful indeed. So, what would you say to the earth if you had a chance to use Belmar's megaphone? It's a bit tough to imagine, especially sitting here in front of a microphone in a windowless room, but I would say something like this. Thank you for everything you give me, for water to drink, for soil and plants for food, sometimes even in my own backyard for trees, for oxygen. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the legacy of colonization and the damage it has done to you. I'm sorry that my ancestors came here and reproduced European ways of taking, using, and devastating the land. I wish we could go back. But going forward, we can make changes. I hope to convince more humans to be mindful of their impact on the land. Or something like that. So, Madeline. What would you say? I would apologize as well. I'm sorry for how we've treated and continue to treat you, that we returned your kindness with pollution, deforestation, landfills, and chemicals. I'm sorry that we prioritize products over your health. Most importantly, I'm sorry for the way we treated and abandoned your rightful caretakers and their practices. Thank you for taking care of us. I would also send a shout-out and a message of love to the protesters at Ferry Creek in B.C. right now who are enduring police violence to protest the harmful logging of sacred old-growth forests there. By creating this direct form of communication, Belmore asks us to think about our relationship with the earth. This hopefully engenders respect and perhaps draws attention to what we are harming. Morris notes that indeed Belmore did use the work to speak to humans in power, such as in 1996, where it was used by the Assembly of First Nations to address a meeting of First Ministers on Parliament Hill. And there's even a photograph of former PM Brian Mulroney speaking into it. I wonder what he said. Maybe this work inspires us to continue to communicate, to communicate with the earth, with those who make decisions to harm it, with those who are trying to protect it, such as the water protectors on Wet'suwet'en territory. 
and with each other. And that's a wrap. We had so many more examples to fit into this episode, but we've run out of time. If you'd like to know more about landscape, contemporary art, and climate change, come check out our Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Season two of Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Professor Linda Steer. Our sound designer and contributing researcher is Madeline Collins, who is also reading these credits. If you like Unboxing the Canon, please subscribe and rate us on any of the main podcast apps. Because this podcast is an OER, it is free to download and use in your own teaching and learning. If you do use it in your class, we would love to know. You can find us on Twitter at Canon Unboxing or Instagram at Unboxing the Canon. You can also write to unboxingthecanon at gmail.com. Financial support for this podcast comes from the Humanities Research Institute and Match of Minds, both at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, many of whom continue to live and work here today. We encourage you to learn about the history of the Indigenous people and the treaties and agreements that govern the territory where you live. Our region is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. We acknowledge that our great standard of living is directly related to the resources and friendship of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples.